chapter 2. We're right in the middle of Peter's sermon at Pentecost. This is Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 39. If you were able, please stand and honor the reading of God's holy word. The word of God says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also would dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may, say to you, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn by an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Pray with me, please. As we approach now your holy word, Father, Lord, remove every distraction from this place, things that might be in our mind or our hearts, issues of the day, that we might focus upon the things of God, the good news of the gospel of the scriptures. This sermon that Peter preached that day of Pentecost, Lord, as it penetrated the hearts of men and women back then, Lord, may it penetrate ours today through your Holy Spirit. Do your work in us, we ask. Bless this time of, of preaching. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Please be seated. 
One of my favorite characters in the entire New Testament is Peter. Because Peter, sometimes in life, he gets it really, really wrong. And sometimes he gets it right. You ever identify with that? You ever have days where you're like, man, everything I did today was just wrong. Everything I said today was just wrong. Everything just went a bad direction. And somebody's like, oh, I actually said something right today. Well, when Peter messed up or when he did well, he did it big. He did it big. He messed up big and he did well big. Let's talk about a few of those. You remember the time Peter got it wrong when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus? And Peter decided that day that he wanted to make a tabernacle not only for Jesus, but for Elijah and for Moses. And when he made that mistake, the Heavenly Father spoke and said, No, this is my beloved Son, Jesus. Listen to him. In other words, we should be worshiping Jesus and Jesus only. But then there were times Peter got it right. When Jesus fed the 5,000, do you remember what happened? The Bible says that many of his followers left him. They decided not to walk with him anymore. And Jesus looked at the 12, and he asked the disciples, are you going to go away also? And Peter nailed it, didn't he? He said, to whom are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you, Jesus, are the Son of God. He got it right. Then there was another time in Galatia where he got it wrong. He decided to sit and eat with Gentiles while the Jews weren't there. So when the Jews came, he decided to get up and and not sit with them. He didn't want to be seen sitting with them. And when Paul found out about that, he opposed Peter to his face and said, Peter, don't you know that Gentiles and Jews alike were all justified by faith in Christ, not by our works? You know better than that. You're being a hypocrite. But then again, Peter gets it right in Matthew 16. Jesus said to his disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you're the Christ. You are the son of the living God. He nailed it. He got it right. This past week, maybe you reviewed that really big time Peter got it wrong. Jesus, I'm ready to die for you. Yet what happens? Three times Peter denies Christ, even to the point of swearing. Denied Jesus three times, and the rooster crowed. But then there's today. There's 50 days now after the resurrection of Christ. We're in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit has fallen upon the people of God. And Peter, who was a wimp for God just 50 days earlier, denying Christ, Three different times. That same Peter, he decided he's not going to be a wimp anymore. He's going to stand up and he is going to boldly proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to all those who would hear that that day in Acts chapter 2. And that's where we find ourselves today. We find ourselves in the middle of, of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost after the Holy Spirit fell. And in this sermon, I want you to know that Peter talks about three main things. And it's the three points of our sermon today. He talks about the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. 
let's look at those three things today as bold Peter gets it right. Right after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 22. That first point. He talks to us about the life of Jesus. Here's what he says. Men of Israel, hear these words. He's got something to say. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. He's talking to the people, and he says, think back with me. Think back upon who Jesus is and what he did as he walked and talked in our midst. First of all, he says, Jesus' life was a life that was marked by miracles, signs, and wonders. I'm sure there were some there that day who had watched the life of Jesus Christ for the three years he had walked this earth in terms of his public ministry. And he, they had watched Jesus do many different miracles over that time. Let's talk about some of those. I'm sure there were some there who may have been, might have been at the wedding in Cana of Galilee, where in John chapter 2, Jesus turned water into wine. I'm sure there were there some there who were part of that meal that, where Jesus fed 5,000 men with just two fish and five loaves of bread. The Son of God fed thousands and thousands of people with very little food. It was a miracle. There were, there, there were people there that day that had watched Jesus heal the sick, open the eyes of a blind man in John chapter 9. There were those there who probably watched Jesus in John chapter 11 raise a dead man to life, Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha. And that over and over, these folks watched Jesus, the Son of God, do these miracles. And what this text is saying, excuse me, <coughs> what you get when you preach twice the same morning. What this text is saying is that the evidence was absolutely overwhelming. Through Jesus' miracles, his signs, it was conclusive, it was undeniable, Jesus was the Son of God. His was a life that was marked by miracles. He was accredited by God. Look at the text. A man attested to you by God. In other words, God was proving to the people and to us that Jesus really is the Son of God through these miraculous Signs. It was a life marked by miracles. Do you remember when Nicodemus came to Jesus in John chapter 3 at night? He said, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless he comes from God. His life was a life marked by miracles. But secondly, it was a life that was marked by perfection. You know, from the time of Adam and Eve to the birth of Jesus, the Bible teaches us that every single person was a sinner. Even the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even Moses and Aaron, they were found to be sinners in the sight of God. In fact, it was through Moses and Aaron that God set up this whole tabernacle system. 
where they put this tent up in the middle of the desert. And the priest, Aaron at the time, was required to bring a blood sacrifice into the tabernacle that the shedding of blood would would happen. Why? For the remission of sins. Do you know that before Aaron could even come into the Holy of Holies, he himself had to bring a sacrifice not only for the people, but for himself. They had to acknowledge their sin before a holy God. We read things like Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith. Those people who have been faithful to God their entire lives. Abel and Enoch and Noah, Abraham and Sarah and Moses, they're all part of the hall of faith. Rahab and David and the prophets. But every single one of them dealt with a sin problem. But not Jesus. Jesus' life was one that was marked by perfection. The Word of God says to us that He was tempted just as we are, yet without sin. He knew no sin. That made him innocent of all crimes. Isaiah 53, maybe you pondered that passage this week. It says it this way of Jesus. It said he had committed no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. But friends, despite all of those miracles and signs and wonders, and despite his perfection being absolutely innocent of all crimes, We know what happened. This world hated him anyway. The dark heart of man rejected the light of the world. And this text teaches us that even though Jesus had a perfect life, he was sent to be crucified for our sins. Look at the second point. It's found in verse 23. The death of Jesus Peter says in this next verse, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. We're looking now at the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does this verse teach us about the death of Christ? Many things. First of all, it teaches us That Jesus' death, it was according to God's set purpose. It was according to God's plan. Let us keep in mind that nothing surprised our God. Things will surprise you and me from time to time. Things that we don't plan. Our eyes might get this big. We, We might say we didn't realize this or that was going to happen. That's not the case in the death of the Son of God. If you look at the verse, it clearly says he was delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. Look, the scourging did not surprise God. The crown of thorns did not surprise God. The nails and the cross, it did not surprise God. You see, God had a plan and a purpose, a set purpose to do exactly this Because God loved you and loved me so much, he made a plan that involved his suffering, his humiliation. Because he died with a purpose. He died for our sins. 
And we see in that that his death is substitutionary. What does it mean to be a substitute? That one person comes in for another. Being a coach for so many years, substitutions are part of every sports game that you, that you ever have. Someone comes off the bench and into the game for someone else. Substitutions are a part of sports. When you think about substitutionary atonement and, what, and, the, and the cross of Christ, think through this with me. Christ absolutely had no sin, but we did have sin. And we were unacceptable in the sight of God. But God loved us so much that he made a plan with a purpose to demonstrate his love towards us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Christ came into the game of life and said, hey, you've messed this game up. You're not playing the game very well. You keep falling short of my glory. And there's actually no way you can do this perfectly. Let me come into the game of life for you and play it for you. And he did. He came into the game of life and he was perfect. And then he went to the cross and he died for our sins. Do you remember the story in Genesis 22 of Abraham and Isaac? Abraham had waited on his promised son Isaac for years and years and years. He was an old man. He and Sarah were an old couple. But God finally gave him the son of the promise, Isaac. And when Isaac was just very young, God said to Abraham, Take your son, your only son Isaac, and go to the place I will show you and sacrifice your son unto me. What I love about that text is Abraham's faith. He didn't delay. In fact, if you read the text, it says he got up early the next day and he set out on the journey with his son Isaac. And on that journey, Isaac looked up and he said, Dad, I see the wood. I see the fire. Where's the lamb? And Abraham said to his son, God will provide a lamb. They get to the place of sacrifice. Abraham, Abraham binds his son. Fathers, think about that. He binds his son. He raises the knife. I can only imagine that tears were streaming down his face. And at that moment, God stops him and says, Abraham, wait. You don't need to sacrifice your son. Look over and see the ram that's caught in the thicket. Take this ram and remove Isaac and put the ram in its place. Let that ram be a substitute for Isaac. And on that day, even in the Old Testament, God taught us what substitutionary atonement was all about. Church, you and I are Isaac. We're the ones who deserve the wrath of God to come down on us. Yet God says to us, I love you so much that I'm going to provide a substitute to come into the game of life for you. You can be removed. And Jesus will come and take your place. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus comes in, takes our place. He's our substitute in his death. On the cross. Well, that brings us to our third point this morning the resurrection of Christ. 
Look with me, if you would, at verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Jesus rose from the dead. Why? Number one, because of God's power. We look at a situation like this, and if it was me or you, we would say, we're powerless. We're powerless to do anything about that. We can't raise ourselves from the dead. If we were handed over to these men and crucified, there's absolutely nothing we could do to get out of death. We're powerless, but not Jesus. This text says that Jesus had the power over death. You see, the men who crucified Jesus, they thought they were done. Uh, I tell you, the, the, the Jews, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those who hated Jesus, they thought, you know what, we're going to fix all our problems by killing this man. We're, he's going to die, and all these problems are just going to go away. They had no idea who they were dealing with, did they? Not a clue. Because on the third day, he rose again from the dead. They must have thought in their minds, what man has ever raised himself from the dead? But these people had either forgotten or they didn't know the power of God. All they had to do was think back to John chapter 11. He raised Lazarus from the dead. All they had to do was think about what Jesus said. I am the resurrection. I am the life. No, death was not going to triumph over Jesus because when death took on Jesus of Nazareth, it took on too much. He was more powerful. Secondly, he was raised because of God's promise. You'll notice in the text it gets lengthy here in the text. Peter starts quoting the Old Testament, starts quoting Psalm 16 about the life of David and David looking forward to the Christ that would come after him. And it talks about the fact that David and his children, kings who came after David, so you have David and Solomon and Rehoboam and the line, that all of these kings, they lived and then they died. That their bodies would see decay. Many bodies now in the grave see decay. But David, Peter, rather here, repeats the promise that David had made in the Old Testament talking about the Son of God and His coming that His body would never see corruption. It would never see decay. Unlike David who died and saw decay, Jesus, would, His body would never see corruption. He would rise again from the dead. We talk about the promise of God being fulfilled from Psalm 16, yet we can also say the promise of God was fulfilled from John chapter 2. That same chapter where Jesus turns the water into wine and Jesus cleanses the temple, the Jews have a discussion with Jesus about the temple. And here's what it says. Listen closely. This is John 2 starting in verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, 
and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you rise or raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. You see, he was raised not, because, not only because of his power, he was raised because of this promise. And Christ fulfills his promises. When Jesus first had that discussion, tear this temple down and I'll rebuild it in three days. Listen, that temple under Herod the Great took over 40 years, 46 years to build. They thought, how, how can you tear this down and then raise it up? But he wasn't talking about that, was he? He was talking about his own body. Three days, I will be raised to life. But finally, the Bible teaches us that he was raised because of God's purpose. If you had a chance to come to the park this morning for our sunrise service, we looked at one verse from the book of Acts. Let's look at it one more time. I'm, I'm sorry, one, one verse from the book of Romans. This is Romans chapter 5. It teaches us the purpose for which Jesus Christ was raised. Excuse me, Romans 4. Romans 4, 25. Lots of different numbers today. Romans 4, 25. Math guy, got to get it right. Let's go. Romans 4, 25. What was the purpose of Jesus' resurrection? Here's what Paul says. Who was delivered up for our trespasses, but raised for our justification. He was raised because of his power. He was raised for these promises. But he was also raised for the purpose of justifying sinners. What does it mean to justify? It means to declare righteous. As Paul, or excuse me, as Peter's preaching this sermon on the day of Pentecost, he's preaching to those lawless people who put Jesus on the cross. And he's telling them, listen, the whole purpose of Jesus coming and dying, being buried and raised the third day, the purpose is to justify sinners. Justify means to declare righteous. Well, how can a sinner be declared righteous in the sight of God? If God just says, even though you're, even though you're sinful, I declare you to be righteous, and just says that, that that's, that's not good. A transaction needs to take place. God can't just sweep our sin under the rug. How does Christ justify us? This is how. The Bible says that all the sins that belong to the sinner are put on him. That Jesus takes your sin and my sin in his body and he dies with your sin and for your sin. And he satisfies God's righteous requirement. But then, the righteousness that Christ merited in his life, that perfection that we talked about of being tempted to sin but never sinning. His perfection can be charged back to your life so that you can believe and know that Jesus is the Christ. Your sins can be forgiven. You can be justified, not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done for you. My question to you today is, do you believe this? Have you been justified by faith? Because listen to the end of this sermon. You get to the end of this sermon, 
in Acts chapter 2, let's turn back there. Acts chapter 2, you get to the end of the sermon, and Peter's preached his heart out. I mean, he, he is boldly proclaiming the good news, quoting the Old Testament, trying to show these, the, the Jews that the Old Testament spoke this truth. He gets to the end of this sermon, and in verse 37, it says, Now then, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And that's the question for us today. More personally, what will you do? What shall we do with Jesus? These people who had heard the gospel maybe for the very first time, the Holy Spirit descended on their lives. The Bible says they were cut to the heart. They were convicted of their own sin in terms of what Christ had done for them. And they asked this question, what shall we do? In verse 38, and Peter said to them, repent, repent. Repentance is the picture of a man walking one way and he decides to do a U-turn and walk the other way. It's a U-turn. These folks, they were walking towards their own sinfulness. They were walking towards their own dark hearts away from God. And then all of a sudden, they encountered the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. They heard the gospel for the very first time. God cut them to the heart, and they said, what do we do? Repent. Turn from your sin. Turn from your sin and embrace Jesus Christ who's the one who will justify you by his grace. Beloved, if you're here today, you might be like one of these people that day who've heard the gospel for the very first time. You might be able to articulate this story about the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. But there's a question that comes your way and comes my way. What are you going to do? What are you going to do with it? Repent. Believe. Embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, by grace, through faith. If you walked in here today without knowing Jesus, don't walk out of here the same way. Repent, come to the Lord Jesus by grace, through faith, like those in the early church did on that day. Yet maybe you're here and you know Jesus. You've come to know him. Maybe it was a long time ago. What are you to do this day? Well, do you remember the ladies at the tomb when they saw Jesus for the very first time? The resurrected Savior came out, and what did they do? They fell at his feet, and they worshiped him. And beloved, I hope that's where your heart can be today, is right with the hearts of those ladies that first Easter Sunday were. They worshiped the Lord Jesus Christ for who he is and what he has done. Beloved, this is the greatest story that's ever been told. It's the greatest message I could ever share with you, this gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Reflect right now on his life, the miracle signs and wonders. He was accredited by God, proved to be the Son of God. He was absolutely perfect. He did nothing wrong. Yet the world rejected him and put him on a cross. They thought they could just get rid of the problem. But death wasn't strong enough. His promises were sure. 
He rose that third day, conquering our sin, conquering death, conquering hell, and He did it for you. What will you do? An old hymn I used to sing at my, my old church, it went like this. It says, what will you do with Jesus? Neutral you cannot be. For one day your heart will be asking, what will He do with me? Today's the day of salvation. Don't wait. Come to Jesus today. And if you know Jesus, along with the ladies who worshiped at his feet, I pray that your heart and your mind will worship the Lord even now. Pray with me, please.